Thank you. Please be seated. series of sermons on the subject of the Holy Spirit. We were seeking to discover the biblical doctrine of the glorious third person of the Holy Trinity. It has been our desire to get rid of false understanding, confused thinking, and to replace it with God's own mind on the subject. We have established the deity of the Holy Spirit the personhood of the Spirit, not an it, but a he. And we are now in the midst of a study of his work. We are considering what does the Spirit of God do? How may we recognize his work? And what is our part in that work? We have sought to define that work in various ways, but essentially it is the ministration or administration of life through righteousness as it is embodied in Christ and his work, resulting in conformity to Christ by means of the preaching of Christ in the church. Last time we considered together the biblical idea or concept of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is the indwelling of God's Spirit that is our focus in these weeks now. What does it mean for God's Spirit to indwell his people, the church? We're considering that subject. Now, we looked last time at the idea in the Bible, or the con conception of the indwelling life and work of the Holy Spirit in his people. Today, I intend to open to you, if God will allow, the second aspect of indwelling, we've looked at the idea. Today, we tend to study the benefit. The benefit or benefits directly accrued to the people of God by virtue of the indwelling of His Spirit. Turn with me in the Bible to three texts. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll read these three texts to lay the foundation for our consideration of the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. The reason I read these texts is to make it simply clear that the indwelling of the Spirit in the people of God is indeed a true and actual reality, and it is the biblical truth. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Know you not that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Then turn with me to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. And we'll read verse 14. 
Second Timothy 1.14, as Paul seeks to encourage and strengthen the hand of Timothy in the ministry, Timothy, who is by nature a timid sort and who has undergone already some persecution and has shown some signs of potential wavering, the apostle is stirring him up to gird himself in the ministry. And in verse 14 he tells him, that good thing which was committed unto you, guard. And how is he to guard it? Through the Holy Spirit. And what is the central feature of the work of the Holy Spirit through whom Timothy is to guard that thing committed to him? It is that he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And then finally, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 9. <coughs> Speaking of the two realms, in which men live, either the realm of the flesh or the realm of the spirit. You cannot live in both. You are, you're either in the flesh, living according to the flesh, or you're in the spirit, living according to the spirit. Speaking of those two realms, the apostle in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8 says, But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. He makes a statement to Christians. You are not considered to be living in the flesh. You are living in the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit of God. But then he says the qualifying statement. You are living in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So what happens is that the Spirit of God moves into a person and he is seen then not only as having the Spirit dwelling in him, but he also is living in the Spirit. And he's living in the realm of the Spirit. And this is so critical that the next statement tells us, but if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, and we assume he means, has not the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him. You have the Spirit of Christ, you're in the Spirit. But if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of his. If you don't have the Spirit dwelling in you, you do not belong to Christ. You are not his people. The converse of that is, if the Spirit lives in you, you are his people. Or, if you are his people, the Spirit lives in you. They are one and the same in terms of your possession. You're either a child of God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, or you're not a child of God and the Holy Spirit does not indwell you. Having read those texts as foundational background text to help us in our consideration of this subject. Again, help me as we join together in prayer and ask God's grace in the ministry of his word. 
O Lord, you know that we do not presume in this place today that we have a right in ourselves to hear anything from you. And you know that your servant does not presume that he has a right to preach in himself. But, O God, we would cry to you that you would take the appointed means and the appointed servant and mold them and use them for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Supply by your Spirit the things without which all is in vain. Give to us unction in preaching, boldness in the truth, clarity in speech, liberty of utterance, and hearts ready and glad to receive every aspect of your word. Our Father, we would pray that your Son, by virtue of his grace to us, would today teach us and interpret to us the scriptures, even as he did with those disciples going to Emmaus. And may we leave today being able to confess that our hearts burned within us, even as the Lord Jesus interpreted to us the scriptures. Oh God the Spirit, come now and teach us the truth. Make this instrument one who conforms to what he preaches. Lord, hear our plea and supply grace to us in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing is clear and unmistakable in our study. In all this mysterious and wondrous doctrine of God the Spirit, we find that we are completely and utterly cast upon God for every good thing, for our salvation. Having seen what the Spirit is up to and how crucial is His ministry even in carnal things in the world, as minute as our very breath in these lungs, we see that without Him we can do nothing, we cannot be saved. Without the Spirit of God, people never desire Christ. There is no heart in people to come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit give it to them. Without the Spirit of God, there's no understanding of Christ. People sit dull and ignorant even as truth is preached, even as they read it, they don't see it. They cannot see the kingdom of God unless they're born of the Spirit. Without the Spirit of Christ, there never is any true prayer, no access to God. The prayers that religionists pray don't get to God unless the Spirit attends them. <coughs> now, on the other hand, without desiring Christ and without understanding the gospel and without praying, calling on the name of the Lord, we cannot be saved. Unless we pray, the Spirit doesn't come. Unless we call, the Spirit doesn't work. Unless we understand, the Spirit doesn't honor our request. 
Where does that leave us? If we need the Spirit, we must call upon the Spirit. But since we don't have the Spirit, we do not call upon Him. We don't even know we need Him. We're not even aware that that's the problem. What do we do? Well, this leaves us in something of a quandary. We might call it the circle of sovereign grace. On the one hand, God says that you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And on the other hand, he says, none seeks God. On the one hand, he says, stir up that which is within you and plead with God for mercy. On the other hand, he says, men don't plead for God with mercy, for mercy because they're proud. On the one hand, he says to dead sinners, your sins have weighed you down, but they feel not the weight of their sins because they're dead. The very message that is designed to save them falls on deaf ears. The cry of alarm is unheeded because their ears by nature cannot hear the cry. Their hearts cannot feel the alarm. Somebody might say, Pastor, that doesn't make sense. If I have to call upon God and for God to come and help, but I cannot call upon God unless God comes and helps. You're talking double talk. What I'm saying is that biblically that's the picture. And that where it leaves us is in utter dependence on God's grace. Now if you hear what we're saying, you know what will happen? You will call on God. And you'll do it with fervor. You'll not be sluggish if it occurs to your mind and your heart that without the Spirit of God you perish. You'll not hesitate in coming to Christ humbly and begging for mercy if it ever occurs to you that apart from coming there's no hope for you. And what you'll end up hearing yourself pray is, Lord, I don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg, but whatever it is, have mercy on me. And you're already in the place of showing the working of the Spirit of God upon you. I'm simply introducing this morning by reminding you that it is God the Spirit upon whom we depend. And brethren, it's a delicate line, a delicate thing to walk. It's a tightrope. It's a razor's edge. It's so easily, uh, it's so easy for us once we have tasted His work and seen His power to become presumptuous and to begin to presume upon it. And to assume that because he moved last week, he'll move again this week. Or because I prayed in a certain fashion on Thursday and God came and ministered to me and helped, that if I do that same formula on Friday, it guarantees the same sort of sensate response from God. But God doesn't take long to teach us that that's not the case. The Spirit moves where he will. You can hear the sound thereof, but you cannot tell where he's coming from or where he's going. I want us to understand again, therefore, that all that we are speaking about the working of the Holy Spirit is a mysterious thing to us. And there's much about it that we cannot understand and comprehend and elucidate. So we come to the subject again humbly. This morning I want us to speak of the benefits of the work of the Spirit, what some have called the result or the impact 
of his work. What some have called the bounteous fruit of the Spirit. And I don't mean the fruit of the Spirit as we see it in Galatians chapter 5 and those character qualities that are always present to some degree in every true Christian. But I mean the resulting fruitful outgrowth of the labors and the work of the Holy Spirit in his people. And what we're going to do this morning is simply go through a listing and lay before you six of the fruit or the benefits to us of the work and the indwelling of the Spirit in his people. There are ten on my list. We plan to go through six today. First of all, the first fruit or benefit to the saint that is his by virtue of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is this. The saint, by virtue of the indwelling of the Spirit of God, knows comfort and encouragement in affliction. Comfort and encouragement in affliction. Where does the saint find comfort when he's afflicted? Because saints tend, when they are afflicted, to feel it to a degree that many in the world don't feel it. One of the things that happens to a man in Christ is that his whole system becomes more sensitive and more alive. And things bother him to a greater depth and degree than they bother the man on the street, ordinarily. Some men are naturally disposed to having sensitive tempers. But saints are spiritually endowed with more sensitivity than would be theirs naturally. Saints feel the load of grief and affliction. Where then is the comfort of the saint? Well, simply put, the comfort of the saint is found in the comforter of the saints, who said to us in the person of the Son of God, I am with you. I am with you. The mature saint, brethren, knows what it means to find comfort in those words. Some of us less mature saints may struggle with that. What good does it do that the Lord is with me? I don't need the Lord. I need a certain experience or a deliverance from a certain uh, aspect of my life or some sort of relief from this problem. But you see, God's Spirit dwelling in us is there partly as himself to be to us a comfort in our affliction. He is not merely there always to remove the affliction, but to be our comfort and our encouragement. My heart and my flesh fail. And that's the testimony of everyone who's been at this business very long at all. My flesh and my heart fail. But thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When my flesh cannot do it, and it never really can, when I feel the weight of my inadequacy the most, thou art the strength of my heart. Thou art my portion. What does that mean? Well, this means this, that God himself in the person of his abiding spirit is what we feed on and it is adequate to take care of our needs. God himself is what we need. Brethren and friends, 
some of you who feel estranged and who live your life lonely. Some because of your upbringing who never had, who never knew what it meant to have a father or a mother. Who never knew what it meant to have a good father. Who don't know what fathering can do. Who can't comprehend the comfort of good fathering. Because of your experience, you tend to function as one shut up to loneliness. One who doesn't relate well to people. One who doesn't trust people. One who doesn't open up to people who live in your own little world of ups and downs with no ultimate comfort and encouragement. I tell you, a problem you have is that you tend to resist the offer of God the Father to be your comfort by spirit. You can't imagine how God could be a comfort. And practically speaking, some of us, though we are not uh, Muslims or Roman Catholics, practically live as though God is at a distance from us and ought to stay there. As we read on Wednesday night, this idea among the Muslims that, that God is so holy and so separate from sin, he could never be personally related to us, intimately related, to actually live in the heart. But that issue is the central crux of the Christian life, that God dwells in his people. And some of us, though, live as though we don't believe that. We function as though either God would not, or the fact that he does makes no difference to us, because we've not matured to see he is our portion. He is the strength of our failing heart. Our own heart fails, but God's the strength of that heart. Look at the scripture, Second Corinthians chapter 1. We read it last time in our conception of the doctrine of the Spirit as coming from the God of all comfort. But in verse 4, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions that we may be able to comfort them that are in any affliction through the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. How does God comfort us in our affliction? Well, he does it by being with us in our affliction. That's all that's required. That ought to satisfy the saints. To have the Lord is enough. And dear brethren, one of the things God is doing when he withdraws his influence from you and makes you feel alone is teaching you that that's the case. It would be better to have nothing else and have God than to have everything else without him. What if a man should gain the whole world and lose his soul. And it's in the departure of God from the soul that a man loses his soul. It's without God in the life that the life dies and has no meaning. But the scripture speaks of God comforting us. Verse 5 says, As the sufferings of Christ abound in us or unto us, even so our comfort also abounds 
through Christ. How? Because Christ is with us. I will never leave you or forsake you, he has promised. And then in Philippians chapter 1, look with me, in verses 19 and 20. Philippians 1, verse 19. He is speaking of the rejoicing that he feels in his heart and the rejoicing that he does because Christ is being preached. And in verse 19 he says, For I know that this shall turn out to my salvation through your supplication and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing shall I be put to shame, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He's summarily saying that it's not whether he survives in this world or not, that he finds his comfort and his rejoicing. It's that he knows in confidence that Christ will be glorified either way. And how does he know it? Through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That gives the apostle comfort. What's the temptation? He's in jail and can't preach. Others are out of jail preaching. And some of those who are preaching out of jail are actually doing it with a wrong attitude. Their spirit is to preach and use that as an occasion to put Paul down and say, See, we are now God's instruments of the gospel. It's obvious that we're as gifted as you. You're in jail. If God really wanted to use you, he wouldn't let you get stuck in jail. And they do it by ver from a spirit of contention. And the temptation there is for him to get down in the mouth in prison. A man whose passionate heart was to see churches formed, sinners saved. He can't preach. He's locked in jail. And others are out free, and maybe some of them are free because they've not suffered the way he has, or maybe they've not been as bold. We don't know, but the discouragement would set in. The discouragement that how is Christ going to be glorified when an apostle is in jail and not doing what he was called to do? Of course, while he was in jail, we get the benefits of this epistle, which would not have been written had he not been in jail, no doubt. God has his ways. But where did Paul find his comfort? Not in getting out of jail, though he had confidence that if that were God's will, it would happen. But whether he lived or died, he knew by the supply of the Spirit that God would be glorified, and that was comfort to his soul. Now what this does, brethren, it forces us to analyze our motives. It gets down, get down to the heart. What do you want out of your life? What do you want most? If you're in this thing primarily and first off for your happiness, you will not endure to the end. Because God will see to it that there are days you'll not be happy. There will be long periods of time of affliction and trouble that you can escape simply for the turning away from Christ in some aspect of his law or his life. The devil knows how to put pressure on, and he knows the points at which he can put the most pressure where we feel it the most. 
as your motive is yourself and your happiness and your security, you will ultimately defect from Christ. God will see to it that you will. He'll put the pressure on enough at the right time, at the right place, that finally your real motives will be exposed. The apostle's motives come out clear. His goal is to glorify Christ. His goal has not very much to do with whether he lives or dies, but that Christ is glorified. And because the Spirit of God supplies him confidence in his expectation that Christ will be glorified either through life or death, he's comforted and he rejoices. And he doesn't even let these who preach with a bad attitude bother him because Christ is being preached. In the second place, not only do we have the comfort and encouragement in our affliction, the God of all joy and peace through the supply of the Spirit working through prayer, but the Spirit indwelling his people strengthens them. The saint indwelt by the Spirit of God gets strength. There is weakness in us. We are acquainted with weakness. But in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we get real strength. There is the, the ability of a Christian to be strong, but it's strong in the Lord. It's not strong in himself. Are we weak? Some of you are thinking, Pastor, if the Holy Spirit gives strength, I must not have the Holy Spirit. I am nothing but weakness. I can't pray. I can't stay with my Bible five minutes without drifting off and thinking of some worldly thought. Pastor, I, if, that, if, if, if strength is the result of having the Spirit, then obviously I don't have the Spirit. Well, let me ask you this. Where would you be were it not for the Spirit of God? If God could give you ten minutes without his influence at all, you would know the difference. Some of you think you don't have the Spirit because, relatively speaking, you are greatly grieved over your, your weakness and over your nothingness. But what were you like before the Holy Spirit came? You very seldom grieved over your weakness. What you did was gripe at other people, keeping you from getting what you deserved. You spent your life blaming everybody but yourself. And you were strong. You had rights. And you made demands. And you lived in ingratitude and frustration and lack of contentment. You lived that way. You could not breathe out thanksgiving. Couldn't find it in your heart. You couldn't make yourself be humble. You couldn't bring yourself to being meek. You couldn't live like that. It wasn't in you. And all of a sudden now you find yourself thinking of yourself in terms of weakness, need, dependence. Brethren, dependence is the language of the Christian. That's what prayer is all about. Why pray if you're strong? And that's why the apostle is able to say that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's when I see most my utter inability, not just to march, uh, to walk on nails, brethren, but to pray, to preach, to do the things of the Spirit. When I'm weak in those things, then I'm strong. Because it's then that Christ strength is made perfect. Where would you be without the Spirit? I dare say you would not be here complaining about your weakness. You would not grieve over that problem. 
You would not long to be a man or a woman with some spiritual might where you could persevere in prayer. You wouldn't care about prayer. It wouldn't be your longing to live in the Word of God. Therefore, you'd have nothing with which to compare, and you wouldn't have this problem you're facing daily. One of the temptations for you in this generation is to give up the fight. Because the fight is lonely, and it's incessant, and there's not a day you don't have it. And I'm not talking about the fight with people. Those things you can avoid by getting, getting rid of them or ignoring them or stopping your ears up or turning up the music. But you can't get rid of that thing that's in here. That battle. But brethren, do you understand the reason you're in that battle? Because something's changed in your heart. You never had that war inside. The only war you ever had was outside before. Now there's a war. The spirit warring against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And you're in a war. And the tendency is to wish you could get a break from it. From that flows much of our sin. Trying to get away from the pressure, the tension, the fight. And sometimes we let down the guard because we just can't resist any longer. But my Bible says the Lord will never suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will always, with the temptation, give you a way of escape that you may be able to bear up under it. So if we don't endure to the end of that temptation... And we have exercised less than faith. In Romans chapter 15, we read about this concept of the strengthening ministry of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> In Romans 15, 5. Now this is an aspect of strength. And I'll show you what this has to do with strength. Verse 5 says, Now the God of patience and of comfort grant you to be of the same mind one with another according to Jesus Christ, that with one accord you may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can a church full of selfish people ever get to that? How do people who pick apart each other's frailties and faults ever get to that how can you if you sit on everyone's mistakes and nail them to the wall as soon as they how can you ever get to that you can't unless God of all comfort and patience grant it may the God of all comfort may the God of patience grant you to be of the same mind one with another brethren you don't have it within yourself to love the brethren you aren't able to lose yourself in serving others. That's not the way you're put together naturally. You do almost everything you do selfishly. Unless the Spirit of God supply inner strength of character, you will live your life out self-centered. But the Spirit does give strength. Faith, hope, love in the midst of all the saints. Verse 13 of the same chapter, Romans. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy. Brethren, do you find it difficult to rejoice? One of the classic aspects of weakness in us is our inability to discipline our minds. We are an undisciplined generation, especially in the mind. 
a negative thought comes and we have not the ability to shuck it. We run with it. Some of you men have lived your entire teenage and young adult life letting your mind go where it would. You have never forced your mind along channels of righteousness you're not, in, you're not accustomed to. And unless someone else enforced truth upon you from the outside by preaching or by confronting you, you, don't, you aren't able for three minutes to keep a good thought. We have a, low attention, a short attention span. We have undisciplined minds. It's a weakness. How do you rejoice when there's so many reasons to pout? To pout? How do you overcome this power in you that wants to fret? The Holy Spirit supplies strength. That's how saints can rejoice in jail. And brethren, there's a lot of that that we need to learn about. It's no glory to God that a saint in whom the Spirit dwells cannot even direct his mind long enough to rejoice in the truth. Some of us can't remember enough text long enough to remember what is the truth when we're told by the devil all things that aren't the truth. And the devil throws his fiery darts into the mind designed to dissolve our faith. How do you defend against those darts of fire, those arrows of burning fire? You hold up a shield and quench them. But what is the shield? It's the shield of faith. And where do you get your faith? By the hearing of the word of God. The reason some are so pitifully equipped to deal with the pressures of this world in their own minds is because as yet they have not learned the word of God. Some are still reading their Bibles even daily because it's a rule that they think they must follow and not because they are hungry to hear the scriptures. But in the scriptures, by faith, the Spirit of God strengthens the weak. How do you sit in a pew when you don't really want to listen? Or you're just tired and you're sleepy and you're thinking, well, there's always next week. But that's what you said last week. There's always, if I don't get it all, he preaches a long time anyway. If I get 15 minutes of it, it would be more than most places perhaps. And you'd rationalize your undisciplined body and your out-of-shape body and your sleeping mind and you drift through. And instead of receiving, as the Bereans, the word of God with all readiness of mind, you sack yourself through. What happens? Tomorrow you will need something you heard today. And you won't have it. God will see to it. Sometimes you'll have a crisis and you will have no, you'll have no facility with which to confront that crisis the spirit supplies strength but let me make it clear he supplies strength through the ministry of the word of God on a regular basis not through the lazy minded who waits to the crisis and cries out oh holy spirit give me comfort you know what happens in those times you can't even get that cry out you can't even pray and the devil does not usually predict and send out a, a resume ahead of time of when and how he's going to attack. He comes at your weakness. And he comes when you're not prepared. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, during the hot part of the day, when somebody else has caused a problem in your soul, the Spirit is there to strengthen. Brethren, cultivate the strengthening ministry 
of the Spirit of God in the third place. A precious ministry of the Spirit in the saints is that of assurance. The indwelling Spirit supplies assurance to the saints so that saints no more live in fear of death. And they no more live in fear of life. It's not appropriate for a saint to be afraid of living, afraid of moving, afraid of making decisions, afraid of confronting people. The saint indwelt by the Spirit ought not to be afraid to live, ought not to be afraid to enjoy God's life, and he ought not to be afraid of death. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and see something of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in assurance. Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit, in a way that I believe is very difficult to explain, ministers assurance to the, to the saint by bearing witness with his spirit that he is he's a child of God. So what we spoke about when we spoke of the relationship of sonship to God, that out of the natural bent of a Christian comes prayers to a father. It is his tendency to call God a father. Something in his spirit feels that he belongs to God as a son. Now look at what's happened in the theology of our time, or throughout the ages, in which men have stated the universalistic position that God is the father of everybody in the same sense. All the appeals for helping the poor, many of them come from that perspective. It says, God is our Father. All God's children need something. Let's help God's children. The ecumenical movement is ultimately designed to tear down all dividing barriers, to take all distinctives away from humanity so that there's no difference between the wicked and the righteous. Where the scripture continues to build the walls and define the righteous and the wicked and separate them, the world wants to amalgamate it and bring it all into one big homogenized unit. And so they appeal to the saints to be kind to the poor on the ground that the poor are the children of God. Well, in one sense, everyone is a child of God. If in that sense you mean we are all his offspring, we grew out of the dirt that he made, and he was our founding father. But in the biblical sense and in the redemptive sense, not everyone is a child of God. Only those in whom the Spirit dwells. And if you believe you're a child of God and have not come to Christ and turned from your sin and embraced Christ with a heart of faith, you don't have the Spirit. You don't have biblical assurance. The travesty of the evangelism that grants assurance to people by saying, now you've said the words, you're now a son of God, go your way. When the, ha when the Spirit has not done His real work and true repentance has not been received and expressed and true faith has not been found, is a terrible thing to grant false assurance where a person in his mind thinks he's a child of God, but the Spirit is not bearing witness in the heart. 
Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. First John three twenty four. And he that keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he gave us. You know, the audience to whom I'm preaching is an audience that has great difficulty with this. Most of what you've heard about when you've heard preaching on the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with this. It had to do with externals, the ability to perform feats. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was reduced to supernatural and extraordinary manifestations. But you've not been taught much about this indwelling of the Spirit given to us of God, whereby we know that we're the sons of God. Hereby we know that he abides in us. How do we know it? By the Spirit that dwells in us. The question is, how do I know that the Spirit dwells within me? What is it that makes me know? Well, verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 John. Hereby we know that we abide in him and he in us. How do we know that we abide in him and he in us? Because he's given us of his spirit. But don't you want to ask the question? Pastor, that's fine, but it doesn't solve the problem. Hereby I know Jesus lives in me because the spirit lives in me. But how do I know the spirit lives in me? Do you understand that dilemma? You say, Pastor, don't talk negative. I'm trying to deal with reality here. This is where you get your doubts. This is the kind of stuff you want somebody to tell you and you don't, you're scared to ask. This is where you live. How do I know the Spirit is in me? Well, interestingly enough, 1 John has lots of answers to that question. In fact, the whole book is written to answer that question. The one thing we know is that unless the Spirit's in you, you're not Christ. And if you are Christ, the Spirit is in you. But another thing we know is that there are evidences of the Spirit being in us. Those evidences are throughout the epistle and throughout the New Testament. But we're not going to examine that this morning. What we're going to say is this. This is not direct revelation. The Spirit bearing witness to our spirit is not a voice that we audibly hear that makes us infallibly certain that we have God in us. This ministry of indwelling and giving assurance is not essentially a ministry of direct, audible, sensational, or sensual experience whereby we feel it. Brethren, if that's what it is, not only am I a stranger to this, most every Christian I know is a stranger to it. And if that's what it is, then the saints are not allowed ever to have a day when they don't feel whatever that is they're supposed to feel. We are not preaching a kind of feeling that you always have. We are preaching a ministry of the 
spirit by which the saint has assurance that he's the son of God. However, we also are preaching a doctrine of assurance that is not equal in every saint. And one of the clues and keys to understanding this is to know that this is not an absolute piece of concrete planted in the heart that's always the same in every person at every stage. Faith is not identical with assurance. You can't have one without the other, or you can't have assurance without faith, but you can have faith without assurance. And understanding that is critical. Therefore, God sent forth his Spirit to grant assurance. And it is a growing and increasing thing. What if we were to try to put it in one of our three headings of the ministry of the Spirit? The administrator of life, the minister of truth, and the quartermaster of service. Where would we put assurance? I would put it in the ministration of truth. I'd say that in the ministry of truth, whereby the Spirit bears witness with my spirit, the Spirit illuminates my thoughts and my mind to conform to the gospel and its promises. The Spirit teaches me to believe and puts in me the confidence in those promises. Assurance grows in that kind of culture. When God the Spirit works, The Word of God becomes more true to my heart. I grow in my comprehension of the love of God. The Apostle has to pray for the Ephesians that they may come to know the love of God which passes knowledge. He prays that they with all the saints may comprehend what is the depth and breadth and width and height because today they don't comprehend it all. They barely plumbed its depths or scaled its heights or searched its breadth and its width. So he prays that they may grow in that. But it is that ministry of the growing assurance of sonship that is the work of the Spirit to perform. And brethren, where he is a grieved spirit in a church, assurance is lagging. Or, where assurance is lagging, you may assume that the Holy Spirit's work is being frustrated, quenched, and grieved. And in your own life, if you have a pattern of continued lack of confidence that you're a Christian, it may not be so much, it could be, but it may not be so much that you're not saved. It could be that you're lazy, undisciplined in the Word of God, unfaithful in pursuing the truth and concentrating on the truth. It may be you're still self-centered and refuse to get out of yourself and look at yourself and you're a baby. And you ought to be granting other people the word of God in confidence and boldness and you're still wanting somebody to tell you again, am I in? Am I in? Now, I'm not a fool enough to think that in this generation this would not be typical because many of you never had your daddy tell you anything good. Some of you never had a father who said, I love you, I accept you, you're in. And you don't know what that means in your experience in this world. And so it's difficult for you to believe any father would ever do that. And it's a tendency of your mind always to assume that you aren't in. That you would never be accepted. And so you tend to motivate your life by the assumption that you're outside. That you don't belong. 
that you don't fit, that you're not loved. And what do you end up doing? You end up moping around, hitting and missing, one or two cylinders out of eight, your car running using far too much fuel, you're wearing yourself out, there's not the radiance that you ought to have, there's not the joy, your worship doesn't come naturally, and all of that because the ministry of the gospel isn't breaking through to the head. The Spirit is illuminating Christ to us. Did we not say that? He is the minister of truth. He is teaching Christ. He is bearing witness of Christ. He is glorifying Christ. If you see Christ in his finished work, if you understand Christ in the gospel, and you see that he died for sinners, you're a sinner, that all who come to him believing in him are saved from their sins. If you see that and believe that, you grow in that. You're not preoccupied with wondering whether you're a Christian. You're preoccupied with growing as a Christian. You get off of that old dead ground to tell me if I'm saved or not. Instead of looking inside all the time, you begin to look at the objective promises of the gospel. Jesus has died. God has spoken. Now let me make sure and I make this clear to you. We're not saying that that's the only plank or foundation for assurance. The objective words of the gospel are not enough to grant assurance. There's the witness of the Spirit. And it's a mysterious thing. But it's never the witness of the Spirit apart from the objective words of the gospel. You see? It's both hands. But there's a third plank on this foundation of assurance. The witness of the Spirit in context of the administration of the truth of Christ and a holy life. And it's not one or the other. It's not two of the three. You cannot dispense with a holy life and find assurance. And that's why it's so good to see First John say, He that keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Not because you kept the commandments, but as evidence that Christ lives in you, you are a person whose life is patterned after conformity increasingly to God's commandments. And if that's not the case, don't tell me you've got the witness of the Spirit. And see, that's one of the travesties of our day. People are running around saying they've got the witness of the Spirit. Their life doesn't bear testimony to the law of God, but they've got a direct word from God they're saved, so don't try to tell them. And their evangelism often is devoid of the concept of repentance because that's something they don't want to think about. Repentance assumes guilt and sin. The Holy Spirit, though, in a growing saint, ministers assurance. Through the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who abides with us, we are given assurance of our salvation and hope of heaven. Brethren, some of you do believe you're going to heaven. And you're excited about that. And you believe you belong to God. And you believe your sins are forgiven. How did you learn that? I tell you, the Spirit has taught you that. And apart from the Spirit, you would never be able to appropriate those words from this book. This would be another religious book with words on the pages. The Holy Spirit is what makes you read this and what makes you believe it and what makes your heart thrill when you get close to it. That's what's happening. What is it supposed to be like, Pastor? I'll tell you what. It's like what you're going through. Don't you have times when the Word of God comes through and frees your guilt and your fears and you say, Thank God 
that's the Spirit of God. Aren't there times when a verse of a hymn just strikes you with the way that he has organized those words to collate biblical truth and you say, that's me. Thanks be to God. That's the ministry of the Spirit. That's not a cold human thing. That's divine. And it's central to his work. So we must move on. In the fourth place, the Holy Spirit not only grants comfort and strength and assurance, but he also assists us in our prayers. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In order to prepare your hearts, this is, we're going to stop with this point, because I want to get this nailed down. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. This whole chapter is dedicated to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. How do we pray? Well, we pray, Abba, Father. How? Because the spirit of adoption has been given to us. How are we in Christ? Because we have the Spirit dwelling in us. How do we mortify sin? Because the Spirit of God is in us. And so we put to death sin by the Spirit. On and on. But in verse 26 of this chapter, it says to us, In like manner, the Spirit also helps our infirmity. And here's an infirmity that's not speaking primarily of a physical infirmity, but a spiritual infirmity. And he applies it at the point of prayer. It's the inability to pray. And he even applies it at knowledge. For we know not how to pray, as we ought. And I think that is an encompassing concept. It's not just we don't have an intellectual idea of prayer. We just don't know how to pray. Answer me this, brethren. Do you really know how to pray? You get guidance from the Scripture, thanks be to God, but in your heart of hearts, this thing is a mysterious practice, isn't it? When you come to pray... Isn't there something about that that makes you back up and say, how in the world can I get in touch with God? Have you ever thought that? I have. Does that not concern you sometimes? When you, what am I doing here? Now, thanks be to God, when, when I first was converted, I was taught that if I prayed, God would listen. And so I didn't spend a lot of my youth thinking about that and worrying about it. I just prayed. When I had a need, I prayed. When I got up in the morning, I prayed. When I ate, I prayed. When I went to bed at night, I prayed. And all day, I prayed. And I never stopped too much and thought, well, how do I know God's hearing? I, I was taught he did, and I believed that. But years later, when I had to teach others, I had to start analyzing that and thinking through that. And I started thinking, what are we assuming when we go open our mouths and think someone we've never seen is listening? And how do I know that he likes what he's hearing? And how do I know how to form it so that he... Does it matter to God what I say? Well, if he's going to judge every idle word, I assume it does. Or he wouldn't go to the trouble of teaching us how to pray with texts of Scripture. Well, if it matters to God how I pray, how am I supposed to pray? And the Apostle Paul says, we know not how to pray as we ought. Now, we may not know how to pray a little bit, maybe some a lot, but none of us as we ought. We don't know. Well, what are you going to do then? If I don't know how to pray, how do I pray for my children? What if I don't pray right for them? What if I fail in my prayer for my children? 
What if I don't pray right for my church? I'm a pastor here. I'm to give myself to prayer for you. What if I don't do it right? What if I try to pray for you, but I don't do it the way God wants it done, and, it, and you don't get any of the benefits from that? What if I don't pray right when I'm interceding for brethren? What if we, how do I pray? How am I going to pray so that God will hear? And I tell you, brethren, it's not enough to say, oh, God will hear. Not with the Bible I'm reading. There's a lot more involved in prayer than that. Instruction after instruction. But I don't know how to pray as I ought. With the Word of God, I don't know how to pray as I ought. But thanks be to God, He supplied it. Look at what He says. But the Spirit, and He says the Spirit Himself, as though to in, increase the intensity of the identity of the person of God Himself. There's no, no fourth party here. And brethren, this is never... This never approaches anything like Mary or an angel or any of the saints or the apostles. This verse doesn't say we don't know how to pray, so we'll go through some other intermediaries, check out a statue. No, no. The Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And let me say this to you. This is not a text on tongues. This is not a text on tongues. This doesn't say with words that men don't understand. It says with groanings that cannot be uttered. Don't use this as a proof text for uh, ecstatic speech. This isn't speech. This is groaning. And it cannot be uttered. It can't get into words. It's not me babbling with my tongue, but I don't know what I'm talking about, but the Spirit knows what I'm talking about because He's the one. That's not what this is. This is the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit in a way that I can't comprehend. But what He's telling me is when God looks from the heart and as best I can in conformity to God's revealed will and His Word and coming to my Father in the name of my High Priest Jesus Christ, God hears and answers my prayers. God is faithful as a father to supply the Spirit so the saints pray and get results, even though they don't even know how to pray. That does not produce laziness and slovenliness in our prayers, all the more if the Spirit Himself is interceding. I want to be more careful how I pray. And He, he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I have one given to me. Brethren, this goes beyond my ability to, to explain. I hardly can believe it. There is one who intercedes for me, who is God himself, who does always intercede for me according to the will of God. I do not fathom this yet. But that gives me great confidence in prayer. There is a way in which the Spirit of God takes my feeble efforts at communing with God from a broken heart, trusting in Christ alone as the ground by which I have access. I say, Father, by that Spirit, and my Father, through that Spirit, translates, interprets, and intercedes. And what ends up in heaven, sweet-smelling intercession, is according to the will of God. We are assisted in our prayers. Praying always in the Spirit. Zechariah told us we would be given the Spirit of grace and supplication. 
the spirit of prayer. You see what we're saying? The spirit even helps us in our desperate efforts to get help. The spirit helps us in getting help. It's not just that he gives us the help we're asking. He helps us ask. The Spirit supplies our prayer life. Maybe someone may ask, what good is that to me for to know that? Well, it'll make you more aware of what you're doing when you get on your knees. It'll make you aware that there's a supply available to you that you need to begin to think about and inculcate and appropriate. It'll make you more careful in your prayers. It'll make you more sober and it'll make you more expectant. And it'll make you more thankful. He ministers to us before we pray by humbling us. So we come to God rightly. God resists the proud. He ministers to us before we pray by moving upon our hearts to pray. Brethren, why do you pray? Most of the time when it comes out of a true heart is because the Holy Spirit stirred you to pray. It's not because I asked and God gave it. It's because God stirred and I asked and God gave it. Why did you call on the name of the Lord that first time? It's because the Holy Spirit awakened it in you. Men make their plans, but God even directs the words of the mouth. The Spirit helps. He moves us. He strengthens us to pray. Now, some of you have not experienced much of that because you quit too soon. It doesn't start feeling good when you start off. You don't last very long. If you don't start feeling like you're getting with it, then you're not sticking around. Brethren, God does not always immediately do everything I demand on my agenda. In my experience, most often he doesn't. Nehemiah, we heard this morning, four months. How long Abraham? How many years did Abraham wait after the promise for a son? And then that one, that he finally picked out a way to help God answer the prayer, had to wait 13 more years to get God's. Not 13 minutes, brother. And some of us haven't prayed for 13 minutes in a long time. The Spirit will help if you stay there and put yourself in a position that He can. And God will confirm His will and His mind to you in assisting your prayers when you pray. He helps us before our prayers. He helps us during our prayers. And you know what? He helps us after our prayers. You know how? By giving us patience and by giving us hope. There are things that we have waited for in our prayers for years only because the Holy Spirit granted us the patience to wait. It's not my nature to wait. But God assists us. Brethren, this thing goes far beyond what we have time to deal with this morning, but I tell you one of the things the Spirit of God is doing in his indwelling of the saints is assisting them in prayers. And let me make one application if he's helping us to pray, you better believe that that means prayers are going to be heard and answered. Why would he help us? 
if he didn't feel that it was a need. His intent is to get them answered. Left to ourselves, we might get nothing through. So he supplies. I don't comprehend it, but it does promise it. So sometimes, even in my prayers, I'm able to say, Oh, Lord, help me pray. I think that's what the apostles meant when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't know how to pray. Neither do I. Oh, Lord, teach us to pray. Brethren, he will. Don't look around and hear other men praying and say, well, I can't pray that way. Why try? Ask God to help you pray. Learn to pray. And in your prayers, the Spirit comes and assists. You're not going to jump from where you are to where they are the first time you lead us in prayer. But don't you trust us enough to know we can handle that? Are we that immature that we're going to be checking out your prayer? No, he's not very mature in his prayer. When's he going to level up to the rest of us? You think we're that vain? Some of you have that view, and that's why you don't lead in prayer. You think, well, I don't know how to pray like the others. Well, you're not supposed to pray like the others. You're supposed to pray in the Spirit. May God help us to gain confidence in the Holy Spirit's supply in our prayers. Well, we must cut it there. Let me draw a couple of implications quickly. And this is just halfway through these benefits. But just seeing this comfort and encouragement and affliction which comes from the Spirit, strength in our weakness, assurance in our doubts, help in our prayers, Can you imagine a higher privilege than being indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine not having the Spirit? And again, and especially you whose minds trap you over and over about this, do not try to form a mental picture of what this is going to feel like. And say, well, he's saying what without the Spirit. I don't know what. Just ask the question, Without the Spirit, what could you do? With the Spirit, what are you doing? You're doing things that a year ago you never dreamed of doing in prayer, in your Bible, in mortification of sin. It's the Spirit of God that's made that happen. Some of you love people you didn't love very much recently because the Spirit of God is working. There's no higher privilege and to have God at work assisting us to do the things God has commanded us to do. Well, also, it causes us to give much praise and thanksgiving to God that he did not not only spare his Son, but he also gave his Spirit. Dear brethren, give God thanks that he supplied you with his Spirit. And be very, very careful that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit through whom you have assurance and strength and help in your prayers and comfort. Because what will happen when you grieve the Holy Spirit or quench the Holy Spirit, those things will leave you. And there's nothing more miserable than a saint without the presence and the favor of God upon him. And nothing more miserable than one who's tasted the presence and the help of the Spirit and now knows his absence. Dear brethren, don't grieve the Spirit in the way you hear preaching. Don't grieve the Spirit in the way you love brethren. Don't grieve the Spirit 
in the way you approach your Bible and your prayers. Don't grieve the Spirit in your attitude toward the church, toward the ministry of the church. Don't grieve the Spirit in continually submitting yourself to sins unmortified and making no effort to mortify them. Because what you're doing when you grieve the Spirit is losing the benefits of His indwelling. They leave to some great degree when His heart is grieved. But finally, any who sit among us this morning who are strangers to Christ, the reason that you're not moved by what I'm saying the reason you're not interested in what I'm saying, the reason you don't feel a need for the Spirit is because you don't have Him. You see, that's your problem. The reason you're not weeping over your status is because you don't have the Spirit. The reason you're not longing for more is because you don't have the Spirit. The reason you don't care and can't make yourself care because you don't have the Spirit. I didn't say the reason that sometimes you don't care or you feel that you hardly care or that you often fall into despair or fall into selfishness or fall into sin. I didn't say that. I said, you don't even hear what I'm saying as a problem. You don't even feel a need to know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. To, to you, this is all in another realm. You're not even interested in the reason. It's because He does not dwell in you. And that means you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And you have one hope. God promised to give the Spirit to all who come to His Son in faith, turning from their sins and cleaving to Christ. To the degree that you honor and glorify and seek to please Jesus Christ, to that degree you will know increasing measures of the present and faithful ministry of the Spirit of God. He gives them to all those who obey His Son. I pray God will lay upon your heart. God the Spirit will break through to you in a pitiful presentation of such a doctrine that without the Spirit of God you're dead and perished. And I wish some of you could see. I pray some of you can see you're devoid of the Spirit. That's the reason you're acting. When you're acting, you don't know God. He doesn't live in you. Your life knows about Him. But not intimately. May God break through. And may God's Spirit do His work among us. Let us pray. Our Father, we have seen and felt demonstrated here today our need on Your Spirit. And we do lay these words before You and ask that You would sprinkle them with the dew of heaven and that You would apply them to our hearts. O oh God, save us from dullness of hearing. Save us from our lethargic hearts who handle such things so cheaply. O oh God, grant to your people that we may know what it means to walk in the power and the comfort in the assurance of the Spirit of God that our very prayers may be impregnated by his life and work and manifestation. Forgive us of all the sins that we've committed against your Spirit. And help us, O oh God, to understand what it is we're studying. Teach us, O oh God, the Spirit, that we may live your life by your power indwelling us. Hear our prayer. 
and have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.